Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. I'm Chloe Fox and in this episode I'll be talking to Sir Tom Stoppard. Arguably our greatest living playwright, Stoppard's career has spanned almost 60 years and produced such great works as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, The Real Thing and Arcadia. His most recent play, Leopoldstadt, written in his 82nd year, was hailed as a late career masterpiece. His most intimately personal play in decades, Leopoldstadt chronicles multiple generations of a wealthy Jewish family from Vienna. The last scene is given to an Englishman, Leo, whose own émigré story echoes Tom's own. No one is born eight years old, he's told by a Jewish relative. In some way, I was the boy who had all the luck, Stoppard has said of what he calls his charmed life. Born Thomas Straussler in what was then Czechoslovakia in 1937, he and his family fled the Nazis in 1939. After his father was killed in 1942, his mother Marta married Major Ken Stoppard, a dashing English major. In 1946, the family moved to England, where eight-year-old Thomas Straussler became Tom Stoppard, a boy, as it were, without history. His past was never mentioned. Even today, Stoppard's life is that of the consummate Englishman. Our interview took place in the drawing room of the bucolic old rectory that he shares with his third wife, Sabrina Guinness, in Dorset. Charming and considered, Stoppard, as you'll hear, smoked cigarettes and sucked on sweets, his two lifelong indulgences throughout our interview. It's better to have halitosis than to have no opinions, he once said. But any opinions he has, whether about the state of the world, the existence of God or whether or not he should be thought of as a sex symbol, were all put forward with thoughtful good grace. I hope you enjoy listening. We're going to start, if you don't mind... Yes, with what? With politics. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) And I'm going to take you to the beginning of your playwriting life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take you to the early 1970s, where your first three plays, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, The Real Inspector Hound, and Jumpers, mm-hmm. had premiered to great critical acclaim. But the more left-wing branch of the theatre world... yes were critical, perhaps, of your apolitical stance. Um, yes, I, I mean, you're quite right. I, I don't know how little or much people cared either way, but uh, I, I didn't think about politics in my writing, except in a very indirect way. And I wasn't involved in politics I was probably quite ignorant, still am actually, and um, I I wasn't in the mainstream of the kind of plays which were being written, and that's not a choice of course, you you are what you write and you write what you are. Um, I had a certain bent for comedy. Though I didn't think of it as that, uh, but, but it just was the case that everything I was writing and pretty much everything I've ever written 
works somewhere or other on a level of comedy. But you know that was all those years ago, and I'm now sitting here having written a play about a Jewish family who died, mostly died in the Holocaust, and that's a, a two-hour evening in which, during which people laugh quite quite a lot, actually. So it's just the way they certainly don't laugh during the horrible Nazi parts of it all, but although the arc of the story is tragic, um, you get there uh, on various emotional levels, and being amused is an emotion. I think I was something of an outsider because I came to England at the age of eight and for me and my brother and my mother and our mother um, who ma married <coughs> Mr. Stoppard after the war, um, for, for, for us England was a kind of sanctuary and certainly that's how my mother saw it and I wasn't of a mind to complain about my sanctuary, whereas all around me people were complaining mightily about about it, and <clears throat> there was a strong, quite a sort of healthy um, left-wing surge going through the theatre because it was going through the society. I was perceived as a right-wing sort of person. Uh, in a left-wing milieu. But that's not how I saw it exactly. I saw myself as being a conservative person, <coughs> meaning a person with a conservative temperament rather than a conservative ideology. I was kind of shoehorned into uh, the middle classes um, sent to prep school. I was the, at the lower end of all this, my brother and I. Uh, we would turn into little English schoolboys, a typical English prep school in, in Nottinghamshire, first in Derbyshire, then in Nottinghamshire, and then a public school in Yorkshire called Pocklington. Um, and these were not schools for toffs or anything like it, but I think that my father, as it were, in his own image, uh, you know, preferred to be the father of children who went to fee-paying schools rather than to the council school, as it was called. And I think I, I conformed to that. I'm going to read you a quote, um, which I think was your reply at the time to these accusations of apoliticism. Mm -hmm. um, you wrote in the Sunday Times, some writers write because they burn with a cause which they further by writing about it. I burn with no causes. One writes because one loves writing, really. 
Is that still true? I don't remember saying that, but it sounds absolutely the kind of view I held. Um, and it's still true, not as, um, as it were, something which is self-determined, um, but it's true in effect because I write out of some part of me which does the writing. The other parts of me might have all kinds of ideas and feelings, but they don't do the writing. And I guess what I had in mind was that I don't march for them, but I simmer with them as anybody else does, because what I thought then and still think was that political issues, so-called, resolved into moral issues and that did interest me and uh, engaged me. When it came to plays I was writing in all those years, um, they, they didn't they didn't lead into each other, they were like a little fresh start each time. I'm, I'm not a very um, sort of <clears throat> analytical person about my own work or my own temperament. Um, I only do it, as it were, when I'm invited to look at this objectively if I can. And I'm willing to, to tell you what I think I see. But it wasn't at the forefront of my mind while I was living and writing and getting married and having a family and the whole, the whole thing. Um, as I said earlier, everything I wrote was supposed to work on a comedic level uh, to some extent. And <coughs> I think it was that part of me which enjoyed humour, mm. which was driving my writing for my entire in English life. I've been a newspaper reader to this day. And in, in those days, the humorous article was one of the main things I was getting from papers. Now I ignore them. The humorous articles? Yeah, I can't be bothered anymore. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why. I wonder why too. <laughs> <laughs> Not feeling very humorous. Um, they don't seem important enough now. Whatever I was writing, and, and, and you know, for better or worse, it has remained true right through to the writing of Leopoldstadt, which I wrote three years ago. Um, it has remained true that I'm also putting myself in the shoes of an audience which owes you nothing. You were writing for a, a room full of people who were allowed to leave any time they were bored. Any time they wanted, they could just get up and leave. There was nothing to stop them. Um, so I felt you had to stop them by being good at what you were doing. But what I was going to say was you, 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 don't, you don't keep them there because you're on the right side of an argument. I think the, the biggest 
and most alarming question facing all of us is climate change now. Um, it couldn't be more important. If I go to see a play or a film about climate change, uh, I'd consider it more or less a waste of time if it wasn't a good piece of work. And I'd much, much rather read long-form journalism or essays or something if I wanted to simply instruct myself. So a cause is only interesting in so far as it's well presented in terms of theatre. It's interesting that when you first used the phrase burn with a cause, that was it, wasn't it? Mm. Um, I wondered at the time when you used the phrase whether you were referencing Look Back in Anger where Jimmy Porter uh, is raging uh, about the fact that there are no there are no causes nowadays. Quite, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a choice of causes now. Mm, Jimmy Porter would be having a field day. <laughs> yep. yep. It was wonderful to, you know, to, to misquote. Uh, it, was, it, it was great to be alive and to be young was very heaven in 1956 when Look Back in Anger was a brand new play. And it was that... It was, strange little burst of activity in the mid-50s, which I think, well, I don't think I know, made me want to write plays mm. rather than novels, for example, um, because they made theatre into a kind of strange focus where people paid attention to theatre. Mm. So there's a kind of subtext to the subtext, which is that there's an element of vanity. Uh, that uh, I like the idea of having attention paid to what I wrote, and the chances of that happening seem much better if you wrote plays. Such a um, difficult phrase, interesting times. Yes. Um, but I imagine that as a playwright who's interested in interesting times, mm -hmm. that there's lots of food for thought for you in terms of things that you could write about or engage with. Yes, um, ironically and paradoxically, it doesn't help. Um, I am interested and I can see that there are things that one should be writing about. Cancellation, for example. We mentioned climate change anti-Semitism, whatever, everything. Um, but theatre is a storytelling art form. Uh, to have a topic isn't enough. It, it doesn't actually even begin to be enough to having a good subject, a tasty subject. Uh, it has to somehow emerge out of, <coughs> you know, some conflict between individuals, some story arc, and in this kind of interrupted way, I've been trying to. I'm trying to push everything aside so I can actually just 
sit absolutely still for as long as it takes, which might be weeks or months or hours, um, to, to have that moment when you, when you realize that there is another play that you can and want to write. And that hasn't happened to me after I've consciously tried to make it happen for months and months now. I don't know why I've, why I've survived, really. Probably why. I believe that you had a comfortable upbringing, but not necessarily um, money to spare mm-hmm. your parents. Was it something that you grew up aware of? Did it affect you? I would say I was aware of it, um, but I was brought up to believe us to be well off compared to a lot of people, and um, I think I was actually quite strangely proud of not being as rich as many of my schoolfellows. Um, Um, my my brother and I we we shared the bicycle when when we were you know nine years old he was eleven or whatever um, it was a while before we had a bicycle each and when I say bicycle I don't mean a new bicycle but you know second hand bikes and um, So there were there were boys who had brand new bicycles, and I, and I felt, in some sense, I don't know how to put this. I didn't feel superior to them, but I was I was glad to be where I was. Later, a lot later, when I got married, and I was—I didn't get married until I was 29. So there were, you know, 10 years or more where I had no responsibility except to look after myself, and it was remarkable how little I needed. My first weekly pay packet was, um, it, it, I, I remember it like a song, two pound ten and eightpence. So that was, as it were, um, two pounds and fifty pence plus a few pence. And then a year later, it was probably three pounds something. 
but in some, you know, there used to be a currency called the guinea. <laughs> Guineas, one pound, one shilling. And I, and I think that when I was, um, you know, living in somebody's house, you know, having a bed sit, being a lodger, as it were, I think I only needed a couple of guineas to have a roof over my head and, and to be fed every night. Um, and it's not what matters to one somehow when you're younger. No, and when I... So I actually moved to London in 1962, I think. Um, I can't, I'm no longer, I can't remember how much I was earning off this magazine. It's probably £10 a week. Um, it was never a problem. And I smoked. It was an amazing thing. So... I wrote a play in 1960, and after about a year, I, I sent it to an agent that somebody recommended, and the agent liked it, and asked me to come and see him. I was, I was living in Bristol, but I came to London, had this interview, and became a writer with an agent. And this agent, a lovely man called Kenneth Ewing, Mm. Uh, gave the play to read to the sort of top flight management of the age which was Binky Beaumont, H.M. Tennant and they actually bought an option on this play and I think it was for th I think it was a hundred pounds it was untold riches And I bought a Picasso for twenty-five pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's shank. And and I had all this money. I had fifty pounds or something. I can't now remember whether I was given fifty or a hundred, but I think that the etching I bought was twenty-five, and then I had this cash. Were you motivated by money? Some people, you know, are driven by an urge to earn it. No, I was driven by an urge to. Um, an urge for recognition. Mm. Money yeah. was a byproduct. Yeah. Of course, um, there was a later part of my life where, where I had a wife, two children, ultimately, and so on, where one had to think about that much more seriously. But by that time, uh, my play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern had been in Edinburgh and then at the National Theatre, and it was a success, and then. Uh, uh, the film rights were sold and that sort of thing and suddenly I was able to buy a house it all happened quite once it started happening it happened quite quickly was it um, quite overwhelming? no it was it was uh, no it was very uplifting I mean suddenly I could afford Things I haven't even thought about being able to afford. Um, you know, sort of holidays, family holidays, stuff like that. Um, clothes. So 
So essentially, I felt rich. And of course, I was rich uh, by the standard of anybody I've ever mixed with. It's very young, really, to be rich. Um, I was. I. I became, in my own terms, I became rich when I was, yeah, twenty-nine. It's not that young. It's younger than a lot of people are. I mean, some people mm. could have been very um, uh, overwhelmed, intoxicated. Um, well, I didn't muddled turn by into it. a. Yeah, I didn't turn into a kind of playboy or anything. For one thing. Uh, I moved out of London, you know, Josie and I bought a house near Maidenhead. How much over the years um, have your creative choices been dictated by your financial needs? Occasionally, I can't remember exactly when, uh, I would get worried about some tax bill or just generally... um, Probably when I was married to Miriam, I can't remember. Um, I know I once made a kind of deal with Universal in Hollywood where I got what seemed an enormous amount of money uh, for an arrangement which was that I would look at everything they had in development and pick three things to work on. And it went on for too long. But one of the things was Shakespeare in love. I don't remember being worried about money uh, after the early days. Was your mother pleased? She was proud. Um, My stepfather uh, found, ultimately found... It's annoying, I think, because um, in the way he'd been brought up, uh, once I left left off being a journalist, I didn't seem to have a proper job, and yet, bit by bit, I was living in a better house and driving a better car, and he didn't like that. Because of how it made him feel about his own... Yes, his own trajectory wasn't what he felt it should have been as he returned from India, an officer and a gentleman. Uh, my mother was, was certainly proud of me, and I think my brother was. Were you proud of yourself? Um, that's a strange psychology. I'm not sure how... I'm not sure how that feels to be proud of oneself. I'm not quite sure what it means. What I do remember, and I'm sorry it's not the first time I've said this, but what I do remember is standing back, standing at the back of the old Vic sometime in late 1967. I was standing at the back watching my play on stage and suddenly... I suddenly thought, well, here it is, and here I am. And it was odd, because I never felt that I was the kind of person. I I never felt uh, 
talented enough or different enough to have this success, I thought that uh, to have such a success was the mark of somebody rare. And I was standing at the back and it suddenly kind of hit me that this amazing tantalizing vision which I'd had before me uh, was something which turned out to be attainable by people like me. And that was almost like a, a new thought that all these people I was in awe of were actually people like me. I've never felt at all famous, what you'd call famous, for heaven's sake. When Professional Fowl was in rehearsal in 77, Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director, said, would you like to meet Mick Jagger? Because Michael had directed a Rolling Stones promo of some kind. And Mick was living in Cheney's, Cheney Walk. And I thought, what? Really? <laughs> So, so he took me around there. Um, I didn't get to know him then, but that was when I met him. I'd look at Mick and think, you know, from the age of 19, 18, there was almost nowhere on the globe where Mick wouldn't be recognised, to say the least. Uh, Yeah, that's fame. So that is fame. Um, and I've never ever felt anything like that. I think I've resisted the idea of being well known. Mm. Um, and of course, I'm not well known as you, as you widen the sphere. I'm less and less well known until I'm completely unknown. Does success of the kind that you've had, or financial success, did it have any emotional repercussions, I suppose? Perhaps on family life or on, on anything? Well, the pluses so far outweigh the minuses. I don't even know how to answer the question. I mean, um, the, the greatest thing about having money is that it enables, it, it enables you to be generous with impunity uh, and I remember thinking this years and years ago that um, my idea of being well off was to be in a to pick up a tab in a restaurant or buy five books in the bookshop without it impinging on one's financial situation at all. It was like free books, because you don't notice the money at all. My brother, I, was, I, was, I never told him this, but I was once of, uh, I was a very kind of knocked back by something my brother said when we were both probably, you know, around 60 years old or 50 or something and he told me the car he'd always wanted to have but couldn't afford 
and it was a Golf. It wasn't a Rolls Royce. And I thought, oh, Jesus, yes. Um, I've, ne I've never actually joined the dots and thought of him as not being able to have something he would like to have had. In, in this case, a particular kind of family car. There was no attraction for me in uh, drugs or gambling. You know, I never got I never got into deep trouble uh, by spending my money stupidly and hugely. You know, I, I mean, I'm, it's Pardon. kind of as a. Fast editions. As a playboy, I'm a, I'm a kind of pathetic failure. <laughs> uh, sometime in the 70s, uh, in there um, are the first editions of Jane Austen, for example, first editions of wow. Oscar Wilde and, and Charles Dickens. That box there is David Copperfield in parts. No. And I used to buy there were several. Dickens uh, books in parts, you know what I mean, don't you? I do. Um, I do. And they weren't, I couldn't afford them now actually, probably, I'm not sure I could afford them, but but, but uh, the, the whole economics of, of antiquarian books yeah. changed at some point. You won't say it of yourself, but I know that you're very generous. Am I? Apparently. But as I said, um, the best thing about having any money is that uh, you can afford to give some of it away without really feeling the lack. Sex is also to include relationships. Yes. I know that you're quite rightly very private. You wouldn't want to talk about your private life particularly. But you have written about love. Yes. And I'm going to read you a quote from The Real Thing, which you'll be aware of, having written it. Yes. But I know that Henry is a character who you have said was more autobiographical than others, maybe. Yeah. And he says, I love this quote, he says, I love love. I love having a lover and being one. Do you remember all of it? Mm -hmm. The insularity of passion, I love it. It's to do with knowing and being known. Knowledge of each other, not of the flesh, but through the flesh. Knowledge of self, the real him, the real her, the mask slipped from the face. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah, as you rightly say, um, Henry um, is not autobiographical in a narrative sense, but he says things, I believe, about sex and, and writing and other things, so yes. And he's a playwright. And indeed. And you've been married three times, and you've had two, I think, other very significant relationships. And I'm wondering... how much the women in your life have affected the writer that you've been? Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, I might start answering that by reminding myself that I, I lived on my own for 30 years. Uh, Before marrying Sabrina, who you are now married to. That's right. Mm. Um, and um, I wouldn't change anything, but living on your own is better for writing. Is it? Yeah, because you can prioritise it without um, anybody else paying the price for your doing that. You, know, you can prioritise writing uh, which is a kind of selfishness but if you're living on your own there's nobody to to pick up the tab for that selfishness. You know, I think sex is as important and as wonderful as everybody else. My mother was very prudish. Um, and I remember there was a line in Arcadia, and I remember, although, you know, um, uh, I was... I was, must have been 50 when I wrote I can't remember what, how old I was, but I was still concerned about... He says... Um, she says, you know, you're my tutor. You, 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 should be, you should be candid with me or something about um, what, what carnal embrace means. And he, and he says it's the practice... He says it's the insertion of the male genital organ into the female genital organ for purposes of procreation and pleasure. That's what he says. And I remember thinking um, that my mum would avert her eyes, you know, mentally. Um, and I, and I, I could only write about sexual experience in, directly through somebody getting a laugh from the audience, not actually in a sincere way at all. It, it, it was, to, in other words, I had to make a joke. Mm. Um, well, you're a product of your generation. Oh, I don't know about that. I think, and an Englishman. I think, um, I think generationally, maybe a part of my class mm. or my aspiring class, but um, no, I've, I've met lots of people who's, uh, who are so open about sex with their parents, I'm sort of astounded by it. Yes. Um, we were not a kind of tactile family. Well, my mother and I were tactile, but what I mean is um, one didn't confide. No. Did you... Um have that sort of relationship with your sons? Thanks to Miriam, I did on her, but through her. Yes. M Miriam was very open, and, you know, she wrote about it and so on uh, as a doctor. <clears throat> so, um, in the case of William and Ed, Miriam's children, uh, I think sex was much, much more openly discussed with her than it ever was in, when I was their age. 
Mm. And my brother and I never, we were very withdrawn with each other. Your um, physical attractiveness all the way through your life is something that has often been... Um, I was never physically attractive. I mean, this, this, this I can tell you. I think you might have been. <laughs> to myself, I was not. Um, I once met Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward in London. Oh. And I was with Miriam, and for some reason, I was invited to meet them. I mean, just the four of us. They were in the Dorchester or somewhere. I can't even remember Goodness. why we were with them. But anyway, Newman went off pretty quickly because he was going off to drive a racing car somewhere. Um, but I remember this thing that Joanne Woodward said. Uh, Paul has, has never had a bad-looking day in his life. I never had, I never had a good-looking day in my life at all, ever. Um, maybe from the age of, in my 30s onwards. I was so, I was kind of aware that certain women were sort of hitting on me in a mm. kind of discreet way. And my way of dealing with that was to pretend I didn't know or notice. Um, but I didn't, I didn't take that to mean anything much about my appearance. It, it was more to do with um, what I'd written. Mm. You're shy, are you? Yeah, yes, yeah. I'm socially an odd contradiction because I'm, my tendency is to be reclusive, but I can perform sociability. Mm. Um, you know, in the village, I'm quite antisocial, you know, there are enough interruptions as things are, without having lots of chatty friends to talk to. Um, but, you know, when the occasion arises, um, I can sort of perform vivacity, but it's faithless. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't outlast the encounter. You've been married to Sabrina Guinness for eight years. Mm -hmm. And I think you've said before that your marriage to her has made you nicer. <laughs> I read that somewhere. Yes, I think it did. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very kind of reinforcing and supportive, objective in life is to try to make your wife happy or somebody happy. Just, you know, to, to make that a kind of objective is very good for yourself. Um, I think with, with Mary, and she's a marvelous, you know, she's a, she's a wonderful woman, no question. I, I adore her and always did. Um, but probably I was harder to live with because uh, I needed to isolate myself. Mm -hmm.
It's a huge question. Does God feature in your thinking at he all? He does a great deal. Mm, but um, God should be thought of as a verb. Oh, I like that. Uh, I, I don't know what it means, but I like it too. Um, my mother was completely... Uh, I discovered when she, late in her life that she was a complete atheist. Um, on the question of religion, there's, there's the... Um, the, the, the there's the Jewish religion, which I've never experienced. Your parents were secular Jews? Yeah. But they didn't even think of themselves. It just wasn't an important fact about them, in their own view, back mm. in... when I was being born and when they met. Um, uh, you know, my mother's family, some daughters married out, Catholics. It wasn't thought... It was never actually something that mattered mm. until until Hitler. Um, but on the question of re religious observance, so, you know, I was sent to an English prep school, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm Anglican by default, I was never confirmed, I don't know why, most of the school was. I'm rather ashamed of being somebody who loves the fact that the church is there when it's time for Christmas carols or Harvest Festival. Uh, it is rather shameful. So I think there's something much bigger and deeper in our universe. But at the same time, um, I'm enough of a literalist to realise that a phrase like spiritual dimension is such a woolly <laughs> what does it mean for heaven's sake um, so I think of myself as being constrained by a belief which you could call religious and I think it's a good thing because it, because it makes me better makes me behave better um I don't think it's good for one to think that you'll get off scot-free, mm. whatever kind of person you are. Do you think about it more as you get older? Uh, I suppose the answer is yes, but I've always thought about it a lot. Mm. Um, In your work, you've been arguing with yourself over it yes, uh, for many years. Yeah, but that's arguing with myself is is what I do mm. um, I don't think I have an intellectual position I simply have a personal experience position you know that the idea that, that human kindness at least in the language that I use in, in English the, the idea of human kindness is is so connected with kin and kindred um, so in my utopia there's a, there's a phrase which isn't mine but in my utopia a, a competition of generosity is what 
is the, is the impulse which everybody ought to have, just to be competitively generous, so that um, it's something we know about when we're in family. You know, uh, you know, you have the last, you have the last. No, you have it. No, you have it. People, people find it's completely normal when it's, when when they're talking about your own kin. It's, it's normal to be kind. Um, so, if you could actually extend that intimate circle to include one's neighbours, mm. then the neighbourhood would be a better place. And yeah. if miraculously you could extend it to the whole village or to the town. You see what I mean? I do. But the actual essential thing at the middle is that you are unselfish. You're not acting out of self-interest. And the whole underpinning of of the material, physical view is that self-interest governs every single action. Mm. Even when it's not on the surface. I've been dithering about this as long as I've been writing. You know, you mentioned Jumpers, which is a comedy, but mm. Jumpers is actually about that. What, what is so good about good? Why, why is that? Why is good good exactly? Mm. Why is it better than bad? Um, and what does that yes. mean? Is it a construct or what we've just labelled it as? And the man in Jumpers, what he's trying to convey is. That there's a not a mystery, and you know the interesting question isn't is this more good than that? Uh, that you can deal with in one one level or another. But the interesting question is why is the comparison even in order? Why are we comparing the two? You're right that the word spiritual is a very woolly phrase Mm. Um, I wonder if when you're absolutely in a moment whether it's work or marriage or smoking a cigarette whether something ever feels um, just bigger than you that you're being yeah guided somehow somewhere by something beyond yourself particularly with writing well I think one's conscience one's conscience is something beyond oneself Mm. at least that's that's where the that's that's the edge um If conscience was a brain activity and you could reduce brain to its physical components, um, it's, it's impossible to actually account for conscience. And yet it's conscience which is constraining one and, and making one behave mm. better than you might otherwise behave. Mm. So what exactly is happening there? 
at the end of the day, what matters? You can only kind of deal with stuff which you can deal with, you know, you've got family, you've got a wife, you've got family, you've got people who are close to you. Um, if that matters to each of us, uh, then there's some foundation for society. Do you th think more and more deeply as you get older or not necessarily? Yes, I do, but uh, philosophically, mm. not politically. I no. rely on Sabrina to keep me abreast of politics mm. and almost to give me my opinions, but... Um, Honestly, I'm no more engaged in politics than I was when I was writing Rosencrantz. Mm. Um, but you are always thinking, what's it all about? I'm engaged in morality. So yeah. to me, professional foul, which seems to be about communism and ideology, uh, these are moral questions for the people in the play. Um, Which comes down to right and wrong, good and bad. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to the extraordinary Richard Holloway, writer, broadcaster and former Bishop of Edinburgh and there are many more wonderful minds in the pipeline. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound editing and original theme music. Until next time, goodbye.